0: Good afternoon, I'm Al Cresta. On this program, we've often talked about the uh, social process of secularization. This is the process by which religious ideas, uh, religious influence, individuals, uh, institutions are pushed to the margin of life, uh, no longer considered having very much public significance. And that's aided by an ideology called secularism or secular humanism often, which again seeks to very consciously uh, push religious ideas out of the public square into to the margins, eh, turning it into something of a hobby for us. At the same time, we've tried to point out that the Christian faith uh, remains much more alive and influential today than many people realize. There's been published recently a book called Dominion, uh, How the Christian Revolution Remade the World, by Tom Holland, that I thought was exceptional, and I wanted to make sure we had the opportunity to talk to Tom. He's the author, as I said, of Dominion, How the Christian Revolution Remade the World. He's an award-winning historian of the ancient world, a translator of Greek classical texts, uh, a documentary writer. He's the author of six other books, including Rubicon, the recipient of the Hessel Tiltman Prize for History, and was shortlisted for the Samuel Johnson Prize, and also Persian Fire, winner of the uh, Anglo-Hellenic League's uh, Runciman Award. He contributes regularly to The Guardian, The Times of London, The Wall Street Journal, and The New York Times, and lives in London. Tom, it's great to make your acquaintance. Thank you.
1: Thanks very much for having me.
0: The thesis of the book, as as I read it, is that Christian influence, for good or ill, uh, has been so all per- pervasive that we've ceased even being aware of it. Uh, and the last—I mean, the last person able to identify water would be a fish, right? Because uh, they're so immersed in it, they have no counter environment <laughs> by which to judge it.
1: Yeah. The, uh... That that was that was absolutely the metaphor I had in my mind as I was writing the book. That that if the West is a goldfish bowl and we're the goldfish, then the waters that we swim in are completely Christian. Yeah. And it's only when you're removed from that goldfish bowl that you realise it. But actually, while I, a few months after I finished writing the book, um, an even better metaphor okay. from me, which, <laughs> right. um, came from um, from watching. There was a. a a a series about uh, Chernobyl, the nuclear reactor that exploded. And um, I was watching it, and uh, they had um, two of the lead characters right next to the the reactor, and you could see the radioactivity leaking, and it was ionizing the air, so it was very evident what was happening. But of course, um, beyond Chernobyl, in Kiev and Scandinavia and uh, Western Europe, people are breathing in the radioactivity, but they don't realize that they're breathing it in, but it's still affecting them. And by that, I don't, I don't mean that Christianity kills you or makes your head <laughs> or anything like that. But what I mean is that when you're at the heart of Christianity, if you're in a cathedral, if you're looking at the impact that the Bible has had, all things where where the manifestations of Christianity are very, very evident, you of course you recognize what is revolutionary and transformative about it, but... There are all kinds of ways as well in which the influence of Christianity is harder to detect. And that's often because, by a kind of remarkable paradox, many things that may seem antithetical to Christianity to be destructive of Christianity's claims, in fact, are bred of assumptions that are themselves deeply Christian. And you began by talking about the idea of secularism and the secular. Mm -hmm. And that would be a classic example, because the idea of the secular is not something that just hangs in the air waiting to be discovered. It's not something that every civilization and every culture and every country has had. Mm -hmm. It's a very, very distinctively Christian idea that is bred out of Christian theology, And Christian history. And it's a measure of Christianity's influence that people across the world now take for granted that it exists. So Japan or India or Turkey all define themselves as secular, even though none of them are Christian countries.
0: Interesting. Yes, very good. Uh, You have, uh, if I recall, I'm not sure where I heard this. It might have been your discussion with A.C. Grayling. But um, you you were really much more interested in the classical world and its heroes uh, growing up than you were uh, Christianity. Is that true?
1: <laughs> well, yes. Um, I, I, uh, I was brought up to England here, here in Britain um, and went to church and uh, sung in the choir, unbelievably, because my voice is terrible, uh, <laughs> and, and went to Sunday school. Um but the awful truth was that I I was kind of like lots of horrible little boys. I preferred things that were kind of violent and glamorous. Mm-hmm. So to begin with it was dinosaurs and then I kind of seamlessly moved on to what is basically the tyrannosaur of the ancient world, which is the Roman Empire. Mm-hmm. And I just found the Romans very, very you know, Kind of sexy, really. <laughs> um, and the awful thing is, is that if you'd asked me whose side, you know, if you'd asked me when I was ten, whose side was I on, <laughs> with Pontius Pilate or Jesus, I would completely have gone with Pontius Pilate <laughs> because he has the eagle, he has the robes, he has the soldiers, he has the centurions. And so when I um, w- when I when I grew up, I uh, classical world was my great interest. And that's what I began writing about, and so I wrote. Um, a book, Rubicon, about the um, the age of Julius Caesar, uh, the collapse of the Roman Republic. And then I wrote a, a, another book, Dynasty, about the um, the first imperial dynasty, Augustus, and, and, and his family ending in Nero. And to make sense of a distant period, um, you can't try and portray it solely in terms of your own moral assumptions, your right. own... Uh, perspectives. You have to try and get inside the heads of these people. And it's often very difficult because you know, they lived 2000 years ago, but it was a sustained effort that took me you know, years of my life. Mm-hmm. And what I found when I did that was that these glamorous, terrifying figures were actually so terrifying that they began to seem increasingly alien to me. And, Much so I regret the fact that tyrannophils no longer exist. I wouldn't want one as a pet. And in a similar way, fascinating though I find ancient Rome, I would not have wanted to live in it. Mm. And I I began more and more to think, well, what is it that's changed? What is the process of transformation by which things that the Romans took for granted now seem to me unutterably terrifying and, uh, and often repellent? And a a bit like when you have an itch itch on the back and you can't quite find it, and then you discover it and you start scratching it and it does feel great, I began to realize essentially that what had changed was the coming of Christianity. And that in trying to look at at the pre-Christian world, there was a kind of haze of influence that was entirely Christian. And the obvious example of that, of course, is, is morals, ethics, which is really summed up by the idea of the cross, the way in which what had been an emblem of, of torture, of power, of the right of a superpower to torture to death anyone who, who dared to oppose it. And this gets turned in, essentially into, in, in, into the opposite, about the, the victory of the victim over the victimizer. So a very profound moral revolution there. But it's also in all kinds of other dimensions as well, including, I don't know, how how people understand time, how people understand sexual desire, all kinds of things like that. And including, as I said, you know, ideas of of there being things like the secular. Essentially, almost everything that we take for granted is not human nature. It's culturally expressed. It's, It's a cultural materialization of the impact of Christianity on us. And it's only when you realize that that you start to realize, even if you're a Christian, how profoundly shaped by Christianity all one's assumptions are. It
0: was, let's take the idea of monogamy. What, was, what, was marriage look, what did it look like prior to the rise of Christianity in the Church?
1: Well, the, the, the Romans were monogamous, but they were monogamous... It, it, their attitude to marriage was a bit like a kind of Rubik's Cube that you twist and turn it around. Mm -hmm. So people would divorce one another at the drop of a hat. Um, The Jews were... were, A man could have several wives. Uh, And uh, Paul, of course, is is a Jew, and so that's something that he takes for granted to begin with. Um, However, when he... um, when he has his conversion, when he has this this astonishing conviction that this um, person who has this obscure criminal who's been tortured to death in some mysterious way that Paul can't quite pin down is a part of the one created God of the universe, he has to find a way of making sense of the idea of love that this Sacrifice that Jesus has made on the cross. What what does this mean for individual human beings and understanding of love? And so he constructs um, a model of human relations that replicates the relationship that Paul understands as existing between Christ and his church. And Paul casts the man in the relationship as Christ and the woman in the relationship as the church. Now, the implication of that is that Christ and his love for the church is something that is eternal. Mm-hmm. So therefore, divorce becomes an impossibility, yes. and a man and a, a man has to choose the woman that he spends his life with. And so an entirely novel model of matrimony is starting to be constructed there. There's, there's, there's been nothing quite like this before that. But this has a further knock-on effect, which is about the very nature of sexual relations, which in the Roman world were pretty brutal. Um, for us, the, the, there's a kind of a, 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 a binary, which is it's, it's a man and a woman. For the Romans, that didn't really exist. For the Romans, it was about power. It was about whether you were a free male citizen um, or, or if you weren't. And if you were a female citizen, you could effectively do what you wanted to anyone of who, anyone, any inferior in your household, yeah. male or female. It didn't really make a difference. So when Paul writes his letter to the Corinthians, and the Corinthians are Roman colonists, by and large, they're not, they're not Greeks, or when he's writing to the Romans, the people that he's writing to, the heads of the household, Are people who have this power? And what Paul is saying is, no, close that down. You have to focus. You cannot just sleep with your salary mate. You have to choose one person and have to sleep with her and marry her.
0: Tom, hold it there for a second. We'll pick it up from that point on the other side of the break, but I've got to take a break right now. Tom Holland, my guest, his book Dominion, How the Christian Revolution Remade the World, our topic. Good afternoon. I'm Al Cresta. With me, Tom Holland, author of, most recently, of Dominion, How the Christian Revolution Remade the World. We were talking before the break, Tom, you were talking about the uh, change that uh, St. Paul's understanding of marriage introduced into the uh, ancient world. And uh, in the Roman world, the uh, head of the family, the sex was basically about power, and uh, it wasn't about the binary male or female. The one with power— uh could use for sexual gratification and for the expression of power uh any uh person who was his social inferior uh male or female i imagine that also means bond or free right
1: yes but if you were a slave you were you were particularly vulnerable to this yeah
0: okay. um
1: so it's it's institutionalized sexual abuse on a scale that that i think we would find hard to comprehend well wow. wow.
0: Um, What do you make of St. Paul's uh, writing in, in, I think it's 1 Corinthians 7, where he talks about the husband's body is not his own, but his wife's, and the wife's body is not her own, but her husband's. There's a reciprocity between male and female there that I think is novel, but uh, you tell me, you know better than I do.
1: Uh, Yes, it is. Um, And I don't want to go into the details on, on, on <laughs> okay. the radio yeah. about about what um, the, the, the Roman attitude to um, sex, but just to suffice to say that it was it was pretty it was pretty different. Um, but the implications of, of, of that ruling, the idea that um, if if Christ's relationship with his church is mirrored in in a, in, in, in a Christian marriage, then the man and the woman have responsibilities towards each other. Um, this ends up in the history of, the, of, of of Latin Christendom. So by Latin Christendom, we mean the, the, the western half of the Roman Empire. Mm-hmm. And when the western half of the Roman Empire collapses, the the, the eastern half, the Greek-speaking half, continues as a, as a Roman Empire right the way up until all of Constantinople in 1453, but the Roman Empire in the West collapses in the 5th century, and you get barbarian kingdoms that will ultimately emerge to become France and England and so on. So we call that Latin Christendom. And in Latin Christendom, over the course of the Middle Ages, this idea that men and women should choose one another again kind of precipitates an amazing social revolution. So this is an example of how theological assumptions can completely reconfigure the way that a society is organized. So in Roman times, as, as I was hinting, the idea of a family, a familia, is closer to a kind of something from the Sopranos. It's a kind of mafiosi idea mm-hmm. of a family, rather than the kind of nuclear family that we tend to have today in the West. And the, the male head of that family Um, The Tony Soprano figure he basically has a right to determine who within his familia should marry one another so if he wants to keep things in the family he can pair cousins off with cousins, second cousins off with second cousins the church over the course of the middle ages and before sets itself very very sternly against this and it says that for cousins to marry one another up to seven degrees of separation is effectively incest and therefore prohibited. Mm -hmm. And the reason for doing that essentially is to shatter the right of of patriarchal figures to determine who within their familiar should marry one another. Mm -hmm. And the emphasis is placed on reciprocity and individual choice. So people they may not imagine, may not think, Church as the the midwife of romantic love, but that's effectively what it becomes. Uh, and and it becomes so enduring that even after the Reformation, this assumption that individual men and women have the right to choose each other, because by doing that you are paying due respect to the idea of Christ's relationship to his church remains a constant in Protestant as well as in Catholic countries. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so the classic illustration of that is Shakespeare's play Romeo and Juliet, where Capulet is the example of an old kind of patriarch. Juliet doesn't want to marry her cousin. She wants to marry Romeo. Mm-hmm. And who is it that allows Romeo and Juliet to marry one another? It's the fire. And this is something that then... You know, the Puritans who who settled New England, they also take it. Um, the, the Puritan, you know, is kind of shorthand for, for someone who, who dislikes any form of sex, but that's not what the Puritans thought at all. The Puritans mm-hmm. thought that a man and a woman should properly love one another in every sense of that word. Um, what Puritans were against was the idea that men should go around behaving as a, as a, as a Roman head of a household had done and and sleeping and harassing anyone he wanted. And so there's kind of a, 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 a paradox that's very evident in um, America at the moment, I think, speaking well, as an outsider.
0: Would you see yeah. the, ha- the hashtag MeToo movement as a reassertion?
1: I would. Of a fundamentally Christian <laughs> yes, understanding? I would. <laughs> because I, I would. Because as I was writing this book, I was thinking, well, I was looking at the 60s and everything that had happened since the 60s, and I was thinking, well, I have to say that that Christian sexual morality does seem to have slightly gone into abeyance across the West. Um, But then as I was writing it, uh, the Harvey Weinstein scandal broke and the Me Too movement developed. And increasingly, you'd see um, Me Too protesters wearing the robes of handmaids, as in the Margaret Atwood novel and the TV drama adapted from it Mm -hmm. Uh, and of course The Handmaid's Tale is a satire on on New England, it's a satire on on Puritanism, but effectively by dressing up in these robes (laughs) protesters are demanding that men behave like Puritans they're demanding that they display continence, that they display um, uh self-control, that yeah. they don't assume that uh, if they have uh, a position of social superiority over inferiors that that means that they can sexually harass them. And I think the key to, to, to the Me Too movement and what it suggests about America is that it wouldn't have worked unless men as well as women had overwhelmingly agreed with the point that was being made, that it was unacceptable for women to be sexually harassed. And when you look at that in the context of 2,000 years of Christian history, you're beginning with the Roman world, with a society where that is not remotely taken for granted. And so the measure of the, the incredible transformation that Christianity has brought about is that today people take for granted something that would have been absolutely... Bizarre to the head of a Roman household.
0: Interesting. Yeah, yeah. You give another striking example of, uh, within our last generation, of an example of Christian influence that was probably unrecognized at the time. And you, uh, in fact, it's in the chapter called Love, and it begins on Sunday, June 25th, 1967. Set
1: that up for us, would you? Yes. um, So uh, this is to my side of the Atlantic and to uh, Abbey Road Studios in London where the Beatles um, sang All You Need Is Love live on television and it was a global satellite link up the first time that this had been done and um, the Beatles of course were, were famous for rejecting institutional Christianity. John Lennon said that the Beatles were bigger than Jesus right. George Harrison became Hindu um, Paul McCartney wrote Eleanor Rigby, which, uh, among other things, was a kind of portrayal of the fading of institutional Christianity. But there's a case of saying that the assumptions that governed so many of the Beatles' most famous songs, All You Need Is Love, Give Peace a Chance, uh, Imagine No Possessions, these, these are all deeply Christian sentiments. Yeah, um, And so therefore you kind of... It, It seems to me that the Beatles are pied pipers for a convulsion in Christian society that is on a par with the Reformation. And what happens, I think, with the 60s is that Christian assumptions, assumptions that are bred of specific Christian theology, Christian doctrines, Christian history, the ropes that have moored them that have moored these assumptions to christian theology get cut and i think you can see that if you if you think about the 60s as a development of something that was happening in the 50s which is probably the last great pan american christian revolution which is the civil rights movement
0: mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
1: and martin luther king is you know he's a baptist preacher his his oratory is marinated in in the phrases in phrases from the bible in the cadences of the bible and what he is doing is doing what christians in america had repeatedly done which is to try and awaken american christians to try and call them to a sense of repentance for their sins Mm -hmm. and to um purge America of of, of 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 wrong. And Martin Luther King is calling white Americans to a recognition of the fact that if there's no Greek or Jew, then there is no black or white. Right. Um, and he does this in the name of love. And he calls Jesus an extremist for love. And this is a, a, a deep, the civil rights movement is a deeply, deeply Christian movement. And of course, the soundtrack to it are songs that about Exodus, about elijah, um, that 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 black Americans have been singing for generations, but more specifically, it's also the uh, the music of the of the black churches in the south. Now, in England, the impact of the civil rights movement and the impact of this uh, music from the black churches on Liverpool is profound. hugely influences the Beatles. So that when the Beatles go to America, they have it written into their contract that they won't play before segregated audiences. Interesting. And their music is is hugely influenced by the music of the black churches, but the, the, the Beatles don't recognize the theological implications of that. They not they just, you know right. they just they just take all of it for granted. And so by the time you get to 67, 1967, the Summer of Love, that idea of love is very much in the air and all you need is love is the kind of the great anthem of it. But because the idea of love has been cut from its Christian theological moorings, the idea of love can take on all kinds of implications that it hadn't previously had. Particularly, it can take on the idea that love is, is, should be sexual. Yeah. And you start to get it, towards the end of the 60s, the first time really in, in, in the history of the West, the idea that... Um, Christian ideas of sexual ethics should be, should be got rid of, that they're oppressive, and that people should go back to, to pagan ideas, the mm-hmm. Dionysus ideas of sexual liberation.
0: Tom, could you stay with me in another segment? I can. Very good. Tom Holland, my guest, Christian Revolution that Remade the World, our top. Good afternoon, I'm Al Cresta. With me is Tom Holland, award-winning historian of the ancient world and uh, author, most recently, of Dominion, How the Christian Revolution Remade the World. Uh, When I started doing talk radio, it was uh, summer of 1987, and at that time in the United States, um, a segment, of the evangelical world was uh, all taken up with a little booklet that had been published called "88 Reasons the Rapture Will Occur in 1988," and it seems to me that this idea of the imminent, soon return of Jesus uh, has been uh, been an ongoing concern for segments of Christendom. You know, throughout our history, even in the pages of the New Testament, many scholars will mention the 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 expectation of the parousia and the soon return of Jesus. How does that play into Christian, um, um, the cultural consequences of that belief? What are they? Again, I
1: think um, uh, pretty profound, um, because what it does is to set a a definite end point on time. Mm Mm-hmm. And when you combine that with the with the Book of Genesis, the idea that there is a definite start point to time, the assumption of most philosophers, uh, priests in in the world into which Jesus is born, that that time is is cyclical, that it goes round and round and round. This is quite a, a, a dramatic break. It's not something that begins with Christianity. The roots of this idea lie in. Um, in Persia, hmm. the idea that there will be a kind of, you know, that there is a beginning and then that there is, will be a climactic day of judgment. But the the book of Revelation, which uh, many, many uh, early Christians are nervous about, uh, and it, it doesn't end up being part of the New Testament in, in the Greek world, in the Orthodox world, until quite late... Um, But the power of the language in it, the power of the the poetry and the the potency of the prophecy that it articulates is such that it's kind of like, um, for many Christians, it's it's like a kind of drug that it seems to expand the consciousness, but it can also give you hallucinations. (laughs) And so the Church Fathers are very, very anxious to ensure that People don't use it to speculate too much, mm-hmm. and so the key figure in that is uh, Augustine, the great uh, Latin, um, the father of the Latin Church, um, the bishop, uh, North African bishop, who says that it, you shouldn't speculate when when the end of days is going to happen, and that the numbers that the use of the uh, thousand and so on in, uh, in 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 Revelation isn't. is is an abstraction. It's not a a literal number. Um, And this essentially remains the orthodoxy of of the Church. But people cannot resist it. And this is particularly the case, unsurprisingly, in in the Latin Church in the build-up to the first millennium, so the year 1000. And although it's underground, although you don't tend to get too many people in a position of power articulating this it does seem that you what you get in the the build-up to the the millennium and then the decades that follow it and particularly the decades that follow the year 1033 which of course is the millennial anniversary of the crucifixion and the resurrection Mm -hmm. is a process of change in latin christendom so profound that i think you can call it a, a, a revolution and in fact, those who steer it call it a reformatio, a, a remaking. And these revolutionaries seize control of the most significant office in the Latin Church, which, of course, is the bishopric of Rome. Sure. And you get these... Effectively, Europe's first revolutionaries are the popes of the second half of the 11th century and their servants, their agents. And the idea that the Church is is a bride, the bride of Christ, mm-hmm. and therefore must be kept profoundly pure, and that must be readied for a kind of a, 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 a time of reckoning, all of this seems bred of the kind of swirl of apocalyptic yearnings and imaginings, that's been part of the uh, the kind of the, the flux of the politics and the culture of Europe in the eleventh century, and it may seem kind of unimaginably remote, obscure, distant period from the point of view of uh, you know Americans in the twenty-first century. But the weird thing is, is that this is basically what makes everything in the West. Because what happens is that. The idea that society itself can be redeemed, that society can be born again, that society can be washed in the waters of baptism and be cleansed, comes to be taken for granted. And the attempt by these reforming popes in the 11th century to remake society, to fashion the church as something pure and intact and virginal, results in, 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 in something incredibly radical which is the idea that, um, which had been taken for granted, not just in in Europe, but across the whole of Eurasia, the idea that if you are an earthly autocrat, then you have a right to interfere in the business of the supernatural. This is what the church in the 11th century sets itself against. Mm. It says that kings, for instance, who are trying to appoint bishops or so on, are essentially like rapists putting their hands on the on, on the radiant purity of the church, and they're not allowed to do it. And so you have this convulsive process of conflict lasting almost a century, whereby the right and the ability of earthly empires and kings to poke their noses into the business of the church is, is ended. And the church establishes itself as something sovereign, as something distinct. And the process of doing this results in all kinds of convulsions, One of which is that you get very militant warriors who are pledged to defend this process of reformatio. They go to Jerusalem, and we call them Crusades. They fight the Muslims in Spain. They they go to the Baltic to fight the pagans there. But you also get um, attempts to construct uh, clerks, intellectuals who can provide kind of ballast for this sovereign idea of the church that's being constructed. And this results in the, the foundation of novel institutions that come to be called universities. And they start to construct entire frameworks of law that try and work out what God, what God wants from a kind of earthly frameworks of law. Uh, and these lawyers start to construct radical new ideas such that if, for instance, the rich have an obligation to care for the poor, then that must mean that the poor have things called rights. Yeah. And yeah. so you start to get this radical idea that humans have rights. And so you can see that the, 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 the church in medieval Europe, which often, if, 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 since the Enlightenment in particular, but, but, but also from the, the, the Reformation, has been cast as something backward, as something stultified. It's the opposite. This, yeah. is, this is the primal revolutionary society. And this process of reformatio, this process of wanting to cleanse and purify and improve the whole of society, which the reformers of the 11th century pushed through, sets up the kind of model which then repeats itself over the course of subsequent Western history. So what we call the Reformation is just another bout of reformatio. And you can see elements that took place in the 11th century happening in the 16th century. But also, what we call the Enlightenment is exactly the same. Mm -hmm. And ideas of the Enlightenment, the idea that people who walked in darkness have seen a great light, the idea that idolatry is something to be overthrown, the idea that superstition is something to be banished, these aren't ideas that Voltaire is inventing. He's drawing on the Reformation but the Reformation, in turn, is, is drawing on ideas that go back to the missionary movements in early medieval Europe. Right. And those, in turn, are drawing on the biblical inheritance of the New Testament and of the Hebrew prophet. Amen. <laughs> so, the very, know, all these ideas are so shot through with Christian assumptions that even the Enlightenment, which you might think is a great, you know, the great repudiation right, of right. Christianity, is actually just another manifestation of it. Tom, while we're on that, let's go
0: to an idea which continues to have enduring power in our culture, and that is the idea that science and faith, or science and theology, are locked in ongoing warfare Uh, in the 19th century in the United States. There were two very important books published, I think in England as well, um, about the history yeah. of the warfare between science uh, with theology. Anyways, you know
1: the theme I'm talking about. Well, it's science and religion, isn't it? It's, it's, it's science yes. and religion is what they, they say. Yeah. And both of those words in English, science and religion, we might be tempted to assume that they're unproblematic. So you will get people who will talk about you know, ancient Greek religion or Arab science, or whatever, as, as though these are words that can be taken back into the past unproblematically. But it's a bit like saying that, that Julius Caesar conquered France. It, you kind of know what that means, but it's not right, because <laughs> France didn't exist. Yes, okay. He you know, conquered Gaul. Um, and the word religion, so we talked about um, about, about secularism. Basically, the, the idea of, of, of secularism derives from... Uh, a, a, a Latin word, cyculum, which means the flux of things, the limits of, of human memory. So it's it's stuff that it gets swept on on the river of time. And you have to counterpoint that. You need something that will bind you to the eternity of God. And Latin, the Latin word for that is religio. So the Church promises religio, a binding to what's eternal, and counterpoints that to the cyculum which is endless flux and churn. So over the course of, of, of the centuries and then the millennium. This comes to embody the, the idea that there is something called the secular, which can be distinguished from something called religion. And this gets sped up by the, the, the process in the 11th century that I was describing, where the Church extracts itself from earthly realms, what it calls the saculum, And then the Reformation, which democratizes the idea that everyone has a religion, everyone has a kind of binding to God. Mm-hmm. And so you end up, by the time that that the United States is is, uh, founded, with the idea that there is something called the secular and there is something called religion, which is separate from the secular. And this is something very, very distinctive to Western Europe and to America as it emerges. And so that's where the idea of religion comes from. By the 19th century, that's what religion has come to mean. Then you have, what is science? Is there a... have a name for science did the romans have a name for science no and in fact nobody had a name for science until the 19th century again because <laughs> the, the concept didn't exist right what you do have in the middle ages in this period of revolution when universities are starting to be founded is the idea that god's laws are manifest in everything and God, of course, is all-powerful. He can do anything he likes. Uh, you know, any miracle, he can, he can do whatever he wants. But it's evident from both the Old and the New Testaments that God is willing to draw up covenants, that he's willing to submit himself to legal agreements. And more than that, that, as we know from Genesis, that he's created men and women in his image, and therefore men and women presumably have a spark of the divine reason that would enable them to fathom these laws. Yes. And so over the course of the Middle Ages in universities, you get people who, as well as trying to fathom the theological laws, the moral laws, they're also trying to fathom the laws that are manifest in the cosmos. And these, over the course of time, come to be the laws that underpin what by the 19th century are coming to be called science. So again, it's a, it's a distinctive way of understanding the universe that is not a universal. It's not something that you get in China. It's not something that you get in India or the Muslim world. It's very, very distinctive to the Christian world, which is why the idea that there's been an eternal battle between religion and science is ridiculous.
0: It's a whole category mistake.
1: It's a massive category mistake, (laughs) but it's, it's, it's not entirely a category mistake because what is the definition of science? When it comes to be defined in the 19th century, basically it's defined as knowledge that does not depend upon revelation. Right. And so essentially science is being defined as what religion is not. So if you think of, of, of religion as the photograph, then science is the photographic negative.
0: Tom, we're out of time, unfortunately. Uh, thank you so much for the work in Dominion. Uh, I hope we can talk again.
1: I hope so. Thanks very much for having me.
0: Tom Holland, Dominion, How the Christian Revolution Remade the World.